Thank you for downloading this lunchtime talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, the Art Gallery's Curator of Australian Paintings and Sculpture, Tracy Locke, discusses the work of Australian artists living in France in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I, I kind of see myself as standing here as to just reassure you all that actually there's still a pulse in Australian art. It's, it's not all just about the Frenchies, as somebody said to me just now. Um, but we also know that the connections between Australian artists and French artists have, have been long and enduring. Um, so while I, I was, I'm a little bit put out that I'm not standing in the elder wing of Australian art and uh, it has been uh, taken over by those wonderful works, I'm very happy to be here today and actually talk about Australian Impressionist paintings. And in particular, uh, a group of works here, nine works on this wall by seven Australian artists, and all of these works uh, were painted either in Paris or in France. And they have actually been specially arranged because I have the good fortune of being in the very next office to Tony Magnusson, and we've had wonderful discussions about the forthcoming Colours exhibition. And so, ahead of time, I was aware of the curatorial premise of the Colours uh, exhibition and the way that the exhibition would be staged room by room, colour by colour. And I said to Tony, that's absolutely fascinating because there's so many works in, in our own Australian art collection that reflect those patterns uh, and what's happening. So what you see on this wall here is a group of works that uh, span across from the darker Velasquez tonal palette through to the more pastel, um, silvery, pink palette, and then finally the glowing jewel at the very end of the pastel, uh, light, high-key palette of Charles Condor. So that is the kind of logic between this grouping of works. And of course, each work and each, each of the seven artists have their own story to tell. They have their own kind of movement in and out uh, and forays in and out of, of Impressionism. I guess the, the most important thing to perhaps talk about just to very much begin with is from my standpoint, uh, my, my view is that these works that we're looking at here that belong to the story of Australian art for many years have actually been like the lost orphans to the story because since the publication of Bernard Smith's um, Place, Taste and Tradition um, of 1945, the expatriates and the artists working beyond our shores were kind of written a bit out of the story and those artists working within the country embracing the kind of nationalist cause, engaging with our own landscape and our own culture here, were very much elevated and given a lot of um, attention and, and prominence, and certainly in institutions. So it's only in more recent times that works such as these that we're looking at are now uh, being resituated and embraced in that bigger story of Australian art. We need to remember that Australian art isn't just about works of art produced in the country. 
They're also about works and those journeys beyond the country. So uh, what I'll do is I, uh, someone said to me earlier, if I, I mention one fact about each work, my talk will be complete as, as I work across. But I will begin with uh, this work by Hugh Ramsey here. It's called The Artist Studio. And this is also by Hugh Ramsey. And uh, this is a work that Hugh Ramsey painted when he was staying in Paris. He was a very young man. Um, and he actually was there because he had been studying at the National Gallery of Victoria um, Art School in, in Melbourne. He was very young, very ambitious, and his great rival at the National Gallery School was Max Meldrum. And this work here, uh, A Portrait of Ida, is by Max Meldrum. So these two young men uh, were great competitors in Melbourne, and it turned out that Max Meldrum uh, won the very prestigious travelling scholarship. Hugh Ramsey came second. And so they ended up actually, Hugh Ramsey being resourceful as he was, still got himself across to France and to Paris and he uh, was there at the same time as Max Meldrum. Now, Hugh, Max Meldrum, his scholarship gave him enough funds to stay and study for three years. Max Meldrum, of course, ended up staying in France for 11 years. He married a French woman and um, had his family there and then returned and he has a particular story as well, which we won't go into at this point. Hugh Ramsey, uh, not the winner of the scholarship, having to live very meanly, stayed in what became a very famous place in Paris, or a, a famous place for artist uh, Australian art students. And it was number 51, Boulevard Saint-Jacques. And it was a building that included a number, a high-rise building, um, and it was a, built of wood. It was not a well-constructed building, and, um, but it was cheap, you know, in Montparnasse, in the centre of the Arts District. And so Hugh Ramsey was able to rent a room in this building, this multi-storey building, and in that room there was no plumbing, there was no heating, um, and that, when I say one room, it was one room. So this image here is of his room, which had the dual or multiple purpose of being his kitchen, his bedroom, his studio, and his entertainment area. And uh, they certainly did entertain. And he, in fact, also shared this space with another Australian artist uh, by the name of MacDonald. But they did have soirees in this space, and certainly at some point in time, a kind of Olive Branch was extended to Max Meldrum down the road and he joined them uh, in this space for a, a one of their soirees. But the conditions were very poor. Uh, but Max Meldrum, Hugh Ramsey, and also one of their other fellow artists, this artist um, here, they all studied together in Paris at, at um, Academy de la Cluse. And at this academy, the Academy was very interested in um, tonal effects and it 
was particularly interested at the time, we're talking around 1900, 1901, in the work of Velazquez, the great Spanish 17th century painter. Um, and so the artists, these three Australian artists, learned these techniques of painting that involve reducing the palette right down to a small number of colours and a focus on tonal values, moving from black into white. And also to paint not so much relying on drawing, but, but to paint uh, by blocking in areas of tone. And so as a result, you can see this sort of dark um, approach to their work. This is one of the, the most important works that Hugh Ramsey produced while he was in Paris of his room. And you can see his coal heater here. And if you come up very closely to the painting, there's one tiny dot of red uh, color uh, to indicate a burning coal in here. The whole painting is clearly very low-toned, very subdued, but we do get this fantastic linear slash all the way down the side of his canvas. This is his easel where he's working, and you get the break in the tone by this very Velasquez uh, um, movement down the composition. The tragedy of this is that the conditions, in fact, were so poor that um, only a couple of years later, at the age of 28, Hugh Ramsey passed away. And he had, in fact, um, came down with tuberculosis as a result of the lack of ventilation and, and the poor conditions that he endured in Paris. Despite that, his output, when he did return to Australia and his output later in London, uh, he is still remains one of our greatest figure painters of the early 20th century. Max Meldrum, his great rival, as, as I've mentioned to you, this is a wonderful portrait of one of Max Meldrum's daughters, Ida, had two girls, Elsa and Ida. And um, you can see, again, this use of blocking in tone, uh, but the very Velasquez kind of interest in spatial recession, uh, and also the way that the further you are away from looking at this painting, the more it kind of merges together. What's fascinating for me is the way that Ida is sitting there so beautifully resting her chin on her hand, but you notice her gaze. She's looking right at us. You notice, notice the portrait above is a very internal portrait, very inward-looking psychological portrait. But here, Ida is looking directly at us. And what's interesting is the way that Max Meldrum went on to become very famous for writing books about the science of appearances and the way of looking at things. And he, in fact, developed his own theory, his science, scientific order of impressions theory. And when he came back to Australia, it was immensely influential, despite the fact he went on to be very um, uh, polarizing when he returned to Melbourne in 1911. Um, but he continued to explore the ideas he had learned in Paris. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, 
became very fascinated with this idea and his theories. And of course, one of his most famous students was Clarice Beckett. And you know, if any of you know her work, you know the sort of softness of her work. Um, notably, Charles Baudelaire was a, a poet in Paris and France at the time that the French Impressionists greatly admired. And um, Baudelaire said at some point, I'll just refer to the, the quote, if you can, can bear with me, if I can find it, is that he said in 1846, the great colorist knew how to create color with a black coat, a white cravat, and a gray background. And you'll notice you have here in, in Max Meldrum's painting the black dress, the white ribbons, and the gray background. So it, it is a very classic example of this kind of Velasquez, uh, interest in Velasquez's work in Paris at the time. Of course, the curator Paul Perrin mentioned that uh, during this time in Paris, there had been an opening up of the Spanish rooms at the Louvre, where artists could be more exposed to the, the, the work of the Spanish painters. And of course, a monograph was published in 1895 on Velazquez. And in fact, someone said at the time um, that if Velazquez had lived, he would grasp the hand of Whistler. So, of course, the influence of Whistler as well in this low tonalism and this controlled palette is also very, very evident in these three works here. And, of course, Manet, who you will be familiar with, with the Colours exhibition, and there's no more obvious influence than the work of Manet in this work by Ambrose Patterson of La Barre of 1904. Ambrose Patterson had studied in, in Melbourne with the other artists, and it is a very clear reference to Manet's very famous painting of, of the bar at the Follies Berger of 1882. What's really, uh, I guess, interesting about this, this study is its, its limited palette, but the whole picture is really a study of reflections, a study of mirroring, and um, everything in it, this sort of metallic front of the bar, the bottles, the glass light fittings, the mirror at the back, everything about it is about reflected space. But it's also quite a fun picture because when you come and have a look at it, uh, you'll notice that Ambrose Patterson has included the little word pat here on, on, the, uh, on these taps. Um, and intriguingly, there's also this sort of hatted man here reflected. It's very hard to read. It's, it's all about trickery, actually, and the conceit, conceit of this space. There's this hatted man. Uh, you don't know, is he inside the bar or is he outside the bar sitting at a table? Um, it's, it's a fascinating, complex study. 
watch, unlike Manet's version, you, you don't have a kind of poker-faced uh, image of a woman. You have these smiling um, bar people here uh, getting into the, perhaps, the mood of the comedy of it. But definitely Manet and Whistler and Velasquez are all references that these artists are looking at while they're working in, in Paris. Ambrose Patterson is particularly interesting. He spent time in Paris. He came back to Australia. Many of them did, you know, when there was a great uh, depression and their funds ran out in Europe, they had to head back home. Ambrose Patterson then went on to Hawaii and then eventually settled in Seattle and became a very, very well-known, successful landscape painter in the United States. Above the work, I'm, I'm getting my way across the room, across the wall. Above, we have uh, a work by Rupert Bunny. And Rupert Bunny's work is also over here. These two mythological subjects are by the same artist, but clearly very different. Rupert Bunny is important to Australian art because he, in fact, spent 50 years, he was Melbourne born, but he spent 50 years of his career in Europe. 47 of those years were spent in Paris. And he eventually established a very successful atelier that was attended by people like Margaret Preston, Bessie Davidson, Gladys Rennell, and so on. So he had a great influence on those Australian artists coming in behind him and, and, and studying with him. This particular painting here, La Coffure, relates to a series of works that Rupert Bunny painted between 1908 and 1910. And it was a series that he produced in his sort of seaside uh, location. He had an apartment. And he dedicated this series called Days and Nights. And the series focused on the intimacy between women. It was a very feminine series. And he was, it's also an indication of what you see in the Colours exhibition next door, where some Impressionist artists became very interested in the work of the Rococo, Rococo artists such as Fragonard and Boucher and this kind of luminosity of their work. There was a large bequest um, that was given to the Louvre of these Rococo works, and it influenced the Impressionists in their palette, and they became very interested in this feathery brushwork, reflect reflective light, and pastel pink palette, and the idea of the feminine space. So when you look at the, the work of those um, 18th century French artists, you can see this, particularly the focus on the, the beautiful drapery and fabrics and the enjoyment of, of those flowing forms. So here's Rupert Bunny picking up on this influence that's happening in Paris and producing this series of works. He produced 40 paintings in that series. So we're very lucky to, to certainly have one of these. But while the work looks very traditional uh, in its subject matter, the kind of concept of it, if you like, is very modern because it's about women internalizing. It's about them um, going into their own internal dreamy space. So it's a banal incident 
a banal moment, but it also points to the decadence of the period, the Belle Epoque, which was a time where this sense of being idle and languorous and relaxing and really pretty much doing nothing uh, became a, a very celebrated subject in French painting at the time. So here again we see an Australian artist, Rupert Bunny, um, really uh, showing the influence of French Impressionist painting in his own work. He became very, very successful. He um, probably among one of our most successful Australian artists uh, in terms of the success of his career in Europe. What is really interesting though for me, sometimes you think, well, it's all well and good for these artists to go off and study, but really how does that affect Australian art? How does that relate to us later on? The thing is that after all those years, Rupert Bunny returned to Australia in 1933, and he was a bit of a, at a loss, but in 1937, there's, I came across a little story about the fact that in Melbourne, he returned and settled in his hometown of Melbourne. And, um, you know, obviously he'd had this huge successful career at the, the cutting edge of, of, of European painting, uh, living in the great metro metropolis of, of Paris. He comes back to Melbourne and it's all a bit of a letdown. But in, in 1937, there's a little story about um, the young Sidney Nolan um, inviting him over, what Sidney Nolan was, was staying up at Ferntree Gully and he was renting a little house and he'd cooked a meal of, of lamb and potatoes and, uh, you know, living on nothing, Madeira and lamb and potatoes, I think. And he invited the old, you know, 73-year-old Rupert Bunny over for dinner. And uh, as, as a time approached for Rupert Bunny's arrival, Sidney Nolan went out the front looking for him and couldn't find him, but then he found him down a ravine because uh, the dear old Rupert Bunny had fallen down this ravine in the, in the water and the mud, and he retrieved him out. But, you know, thankfully... <laughs> but the point of this little story is that... Um, while we can't see traces of Rupert Bunny's influence on Sidney Nolan's work, the fact he could sit and share a meal with a man, a fellow artist who had made it in Europe, who had been a success, who had made it possible for an Australian to be born here and then be successful. And as you all know, of course, Sidney Nolan did go on to do the very same thing and spent many decades working abroad and particularly in England and having, again, one of the most successful careers of any artist of his generation. So that little dinner of lamb and potatoes was, was very much worth it. This work now, at the very top I will talk about, is by Hans Heysen. And it's a view, finally we have an Adelaide-based artist here, moving across to Paris. And there he is at the age of 22. He's found a, a room on the fifth level of a building uh, on the corner of the Boulevard Montparnasse and Boulevard Raspail with a view looking down to nothing other than Café du Dôme here. So there he is, 22 years of age. 
He's got his room, again, like Hugh Ramsey's room. I mean, some would argue rooms in Paris haven't actually changed since then. But a room like Hugh Ramsey's room where there is no plumbing, there is no heating, it's a very primitive space. Uh, and it was a hard time for him. But nevertheless, have a look at his view. It is quite extraordinary. And what's wonderful about this work is how closely it relates to the work of Gustave K. Bott in the first room of the Colors exhibition on your left as you walk in. And it's the room dedicated to the color white and snow subjects. And so here's Hans Heysen at 22 embracing that same impressionist uh, subject matter. And this is his earliest and most important foray into Impressionism when he first arrives. Here, when you do get an opportunity in a minute to have a closer look at the work, you'll notice it's, it's quite restrained. It's not full sort of Impressionism. But there's a tiny touch of green, the, the gaslight and the shutters, and there's a little cast shadow of purple. Um, so he, he's kind of breaking out. But what's important about this work, it's the subject is modern, just like Gustave K. Bott's work of a view, a rooftop view looking down. So it's commenting on the renewal of Paris that had been underway with the construction of great grand parks and uh, bridges and lamp, gas lamp lighting, which is what uh, Heysen has picked up on here, and these wonderful broad avenues. And so a, a city very much unchanging and new. Um, so again, the Impressionist artists embracing what is absolutely new all around them. So Heysen clearly, three years after painting this, he comes back, he wins the win prize for landscape painting, and his career is off. But the time that he spent studying in, in Paris and, and, and elsewhere, his few years away was, was very critical. But what's kind of fun and interesting about Hans Heysen is that his interest in Pizarro was very strong and, in fact, endured insofar as in 1934, when Hans Heysen went across and returned to London uh, to visit his daughter, Nora, he um, saw the work of Camille Pizarro's granddaughter, Oravido. And um, what happened was that Nora, Hans Heysen's daughter, the student artist um, suffering in London and living mean, got to meet uh, Pizarro's granddaughter. And there's a wonderful quote because you can imagine Nora Heysen being very influenced by her father. And, and his instruction and, and her work, in her work. But when, um, when Hans Heysen's daughter, Nora, met Pizarro's granddaughter, I hope you're following me, uh, who was also an artist, I'll just describe to you, because I, I have in mind, of course, the Impressionist Colors exhibition when I speak about this. I would like to read the quote to you. So Nora's writing home to her father, Hans, from London. 
and she said about Oravida visiting her, Oravida Pizarro. She's, and Nora says, Oravida came in like a bomb dropped out of the blue. She slated me right and left. She said my paintings were muddy and 50 years behind time and advised me to change my palette. She admitted that I could draw and had talent, but that was all she allowed me. <laughs> she thinks I use too much brown and black and yellow ochre and keep my colour too low in tone. I, who pride myself on my fresh, bright, clean colour, you can imagine my surprise on hearing that. She hates yellow ochre. Um, and I love it. I use it in everything, almost. And she said, Nora said, and that is where we disagreed. Um, anyway, she goes on, and then she talks about how she went on after that visit. Uh, it was like a whirlwind visit. She went out and she bought white cadmium, red and pale ultramarine, vet composé, cobalt and crimson. And then she said to her father, it is amazing the depth and richness of colour that can be got without using brown or black. <laughs> and of course, a wonderful example of the pre-Oravida visit is actually just down the stairs here to the left by Ruth, 1934. Okay, so have a, a little look at that and think about the impact that this visit had on, on the young Nora. So the connections continue. We then move to the work of E. Phillips Fox. Many of you who will know this work here, E. Phillips Fox, e. Phillips Fox um, and this one here, which is the earliest work in this little display here, 85 years of 1891. I've decided it's the earliest work of the oldest individual. So it is a work titled 85 Years, painted by E. Phillips Fox, who also was from Melbourne, studied in Paris, very, very successful. But what's really interesting about this work by E. Phillips Fox, painted while he was in France, is the subject matter, the subject of the peasant. And this was a subject that the avant-garde were very interested in. Van Gogh was interested in the peasantry, uh, Camille Pizarro, and of course Gauguin. And the reason they were very interested in the workers and the rural workers was because there was this kind of move away from, uh, or there was this kind of anxiety about industrialization occurring in Europe and um, this kind of embrace of modernity. So in one breath, I'm talking about impressionist artists, you know, really gripping hold of anything modern in terms of subject matter. And then all at the same time, you get this push away simultaneously uh, with artists really wanting to uh, celebrate the dignity uh, of, of the workers uh, in, in, the, in the fields. So the other thing about this particular work is you do kind of sense the way he's portrayed this woman of 85 years with incredible uh, dignity. And in fact, she's almost, I feel like she's almost sitting there like a queen in her, her throne. And um, uh, 
the work is also really interesting in terms of the brushwork and the palette. And it's a classic example of E. Phillips Fox embracing this idea of the complementary colours. So the entire picture, he's used the complementary of the violet and then the green and plays on the vibration of those fields of colour against one another. And then you can also see how he's used very much broken brushwork. So it, it, it's a, a, a truly compelling and arresting image. Very small, but the impact is, is certainly moves beyond the borders of the um, canvas. So, of course, uh, uh, we, I'm going to skip over E. Phillips Fox, mainly because he, he is quite, I'm sure, quite well known to you. But what I would like to end on is um, our little gem at the very end of the wall here by Charles Condor. So Charles Condor kind of is a, 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 a fun artist to talk about in some ways. There's always a little bit of tragedy, but he painted this particular work of Hayfields at the age of 26. And so I think I, I'm hoping what you're understanding from this little talk today is how young all of these artists were when they were painting these incredible statements. So that I think there is a certain fervor and a certain receptivity to new knowledge at that age as well. They're not set in their ways. They are open to experimenting. And so, of course, many of you will know Charles Condor was very involved in the Australian Impressionist movements here in Australia. And his masterpiece is actually on display just over here on the wall, Holiday at Mentone, 1888. Note the clouds in the background of that little beach scene. Um, he left, unlike Meldrum, Max Meldrum, who was able to get a scholarship, uh, others uh, were, who were able to get money from family, uh, Charles Condor was able to convince his uncle at the age to support him to go back to Europe, study in Europe at the age of 21 as his kind of 21st birthday gift. So there he is, 1890, age 21, and Condor arrives in Paris and he immerses himself in every part of fabric of that city. And he, he bases himself not in Montparnasse, where these artists were, he was there earlier, but in Montmartre. And very famously, Charles Condor became associated with artists like Toulouse-Lautrec, friends of him. Condor appears in some of Toulouse-Lautrec's works, and later when he went across to London became associated with Oscar Wilde. He, there's a great description of him, well there's many, but one of his, when he was studying at the Academy Julian in, in Paris, his roommate, the, the British artist William Rothenstein, um, decided he wouldn't continue to share his room with Condor anymore because he kind of liked the ladies too much and he liked absinthe too much. So they re remained lifelong friends, but William found himself another room to rent in Paris. And he was also, Condor was later described, just for you to get a little bit of a picture about how, what he was like, he was described as, and the statement was, he was beautiful to look at. 
with a head like an antique marble and a sleepy charm that somehow convinced one that there was someone unusual there. So he, he was mysterious, he was very, very enigmatic character, and he lived life to the fullest, and he, as I said, completely immersed himself into the artistic world of Paris. When he did first arrive, he was clearly aware of the work of Whistler, a great fan, but then he became interested in the work of Claude Monet. And that is very apparent here with this classic motif. So in uh, about 1891, he decided to find himself uh, 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 moving into what he referred to as Monet's country and uh, went into Giverny in the same valley, uh, in, in the same valley. But he also, like E. Phillips Fox, uh, this artist and this artist and Conda all got to see Monet's great exhibition at a commercial gallery in Paris where uh, Monet's um, series of haystacks were very first exhibited. And the impact on those artists was profound. And in fact, so much so that um, Charles Condor, when he saw Monet's exhibition in Paris, witnesses it and sees it firsthand. You know, can you imagine? Um, he wrote home to Australia to his dear friend Tom Roberts. And he said to Tom Roberts, Claude Monet seems to have made a great stride this year and won over the Philistines. I only wish you could have seen some of his landscapes. They lived, and he does them in the funniest way. He paints a good deal still with pure colour, but you quite lose the paint at three or four yards. What he means by that is that effect, the, the dissolution effect, the dissolving effect that Monet's uh, approach had visually or optically. What's really interesting about Condor's kind of approach to this subject matter with witnessing Monet's work firsthand is he doesn't quite push that far with his palette. Um, there is still a sense of form in, in uh, Condor's work here, where his haystacks do still have, uh, well, his forms have almost an enigmatic presence. Uh, he does divide up his palette. We've got this wonderful complementary where almost uh, there's a huge diagonal field here of almost blue. And then, again, the complementary, balancing it out with the complementary of yellow. So you get, again, like up here, this vibration occurring. But when you look closely at this picture, you will see that there is a lot of broken brushwork. And even up here, around the top of this haystack, you've got very particular uh, spots or touches of pure blue paint. So there is still a little bit of that magical, optical play happening, but certainly not to the extent of the great master uh, of the haystack subject matter. But it is a, a wonderful picture. 
And in fact, this was painted a couple of years after he first saw Monet's work. It was painted in 1894. And it was painted during a period of time that Charles Condor was staying near Giverny and from, from spring uh, into autumn. And during this period, he was living nearby with a group of Americans. And um, in fact, he had fallen in love with a great beauty, uh, a, uh, a woman who at that time, that very summer and that period, was being painted by Whistler. Her portrait was being painted by Whistler. And so one tends to sense, possibly, this is me making it up completely, but I do wonder if this is a kind of a celebration picture, and it, it's very much a love picture. And one of the defining characteristics about Charles Condor's enduring characteristics about his work is the way that he ties in, he's very interested in the idea of place, uh, but also his imagination. Uh, in addition to that, Charles Condor has always been very interested in the fleeting moment. And that is foreshadowed in his masterpiece on the work uh, on the wall over here of Mentone, uh, where you see the kind of Chinese umbrella being caught in the wind and moving. So it's a, a technique he used to, to capture a moment in time. And what I'm actually getting at is, is what I love most of all about this picture, is this cloud form here. Because bearing in mind Charles Condor's interest in fleeting effects, symbolism, the imagination. Um, what he's got here, if you come closely and analyze this, it's actually two clouds together. Uh, so I like to think that maybe it sort of references in some way in his imagination this relationship and, and love affair with this American woman. But as we all know, I know I'm taking you too far now, aren't I? But as we all know, um, cloud forms evaporate and dissipate. And that's, in fact, exactly what the relationship did. Uh, it fell through. And only a couple of months later, quite quickly, in fact, after painting this picture, Condor moved across to London and, and started a, a kind of quite a different life for himself there. And he did eventually later marry. But uh, the tragedy about Charles Condor is, is that his lifestyle really took its toll on him. And he ended up passing away at the age of 40. And uh, it was a very short life lived. So between uh, you know, Hugh Ramsey dying at 28, Condor at 40, they still had an incredible impact on the subsequent artists that followed them and the presence that their works have on our walls uh, cannot be uh, disputed, really. So I made it across the wall. And uh, what I'd like to do is just conclude my talk there. And, um, but I would be very happy to take any questions that if anyone does have any questions at all. Oh, thank you.